Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. As always, I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech ecosystem with Kevin Bitov, who is founder and principal consultant at SCXCMC, amongst other things. Kevin and I have known each other for several years now, having met at a CPHI, I think back in 2015. So I was really pleased to get him on the podcast. Uh, just for background, he is an experienced consulting who has demonstrated success in pharmaceutical development across innovator and generics and technical innovation. Leveraging his extensive experience in GMP, business development, contract manufacturing, long-term strategy, he partners with biopharma CEOs and executives to guide their companies through groundbreaking pharma advancements by evaluating strategy, attaining government approvals, and developing new and emerging technologies that improve the development lifecycle. He has formed multiple nonprofit conferences, including the Advancing Drug Development Forum, which we'll talk about later on the podcast today, which examines how innovators are brought from inception to regulatory approval. And prior to that, he'd spent time at Vertex at Trek Therapeutics, as well as advising several CDMOs. So yeah, really great episode for you to kind of get into today. Uh, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoy today's show, please like it or share it with a colleague uh, and that would be wonderful. Enjoy the show. Kevin, welcome to Guilt to Market. Thank you for having me, Ravon. I've been uh, looking forward to doing this for a while. Well, likewise, because you and I have known each other for some time, and we're going to get into that, I'm sure, at some point uh, today. But what is quite funny, Kevin, is I, I've known you for several years, and I didn't actually know all of your background. So it was fun researching this because I found out some stuff about you that I didn't necessarily know in your background. So uh, looking forward to bringing some of that story to life for our listener today. So let's kind of start at the start in terms of your journey into uh in the industry and what to give our listener a bit of that kind of uh, backstory of you know from college to some of the key roles that you've done kind of in the industry in the last kind of you know, 15 to 20 years or so yeah no i'd be happy to show I'm, um i grew up in alberta canada oil gas were the uh, primary economy did my uh, phd and my mba at the university of alberta and it was uh it was a good learning experience uh, doing both at the same time. You really did have to learn how to prioritize what uh, what you needed to get done and when you needed to get done. And from my perspective is I got funding to do my PhD and I, I really wanted to do an MBA because I, I love the business aspect of everything that goes around. So I wanted to get that background education as well. And the MBA was great because I learned a lot from my students, but I wasn't too worried about my marks. I was more worried about... Uh, my PhD research and, and getting that through. So I had the opportunity just to sit back and really learn with my MBA. Coming out of Alberta, I knew I didn't want to be in the oil industry. I have a lot of good friends in the oil industry, but that just wasn't uh, for me. And I really wanted to get into pharmaceutical uh, development and, and in the pharmacy industry. And I always thought that was one of the more innovative industries that I've ever seen just from afar being in uh, Alberta, Canada. So I started off, I moved, uh, moved to the US in 2001 where I did uh, computer modeling and uh, experimentation for uh, as a consultant or as a consulting company. Um, we looked at um, different stirred reactors, inline reactors. Did computer modeling. Worked with Rutgers University, which was which was great at the time. Um, uh, Fernando Muzio there. 
he was a lot of fun and uh, really introduced me into the farm industry. And then went from there, decided to actually get into manufacturing. You know, it's always as a lifelong learner. You want to learn more and more and more. So I actually wanted to learn the ins and outs of pharmaceutical manufacturing. And I went to a, a company called Perigo out in uh, Western Michigan. Um, they're a generic over-the-counter manufacturing company when I was uh, with them. And from there, I learned how manual the pharmaceutical manufacturing industry actually is. I, um, all, my co- all my co-op terms in, uh, in undergrad and grad school were in the oil industry, and everything's automated. You have these big control panels. People are pressing buttons. Things are moving aside. I get in the pharma industry, my first plant tours, I see a guy using a hand scooper to scoop powder into the top of a hop. So it's like going from full automation to no automation, which, uh, which surprised me in itself. Um, and brought, uh, it still comes into my mind every time I think about pharmaceutical manufacturing. And then I came to Boston. I think it was time for me to look at innovative manufacturing at that time. So I um, came to work at Vertex Pharmaceuticals um, back in 2005. It was a um, small company at the time, and they wanted to be an innovative company. So I had the opportunity to work with some great people that looked at innovation as the forefront. They didn't look at pharmaceutical development. It's just because this is the way we've always done it. It's like, how can we make this better? How can we engineer automation, engineer real-time measurement into pharmaceutical manufacturing? So I had the opportunity to bring on the process analytical technology group to Vertex and a, a couple innovations there. Also had the opportunity to do um, continuous manufacturing. I uh, did the initial technical justification, uh, which took a, a year or so. It took a b- lot longer than I thought it would. And then I did the uh, financial justification. So it's a, a mix of both. As an engineer, everyone loves the innovations, but you really got to ma- marry the innovation with how much money you're going to save um, with that innovation or what how much time you're going to save with that innovation. So really look at, at both. And... From that, I went on to uh, co-found my own company uh, called Trek Therapeutics with uh, five other people. What we were doing was uh, bringing uh, treatments for hepatitis C for emerging markets. And we looked at Northern Africa had a huge need for hepatitis C along with um, Asia and Eastern Europe. And at that time, there had already been a couple treatments out there, including Vertex's, but they weren't hitting those markets. So we, uh, five of us banded together. for them, I was uh, did business development and licensing, CMC, the initial project management. Uh, it was pretty much you had to be the jack of all trades with a, a company small like that. And what we were able to do is start clinical trials within the first year of founding the company. Um, it was great, and we were in phase two clinical trials, and they were they were successful for us. We uh, treated uh, twenty nine out of thirty patients got um, uh, viral load negative or zero. Um, with um, that company, which was a lot of fun. And then we were looking for Series B fundraising and my CEO and CFO went out and um, couldn't, weren't successful in finding funding. And during while they're funding raised, that's how I became a consultant. It's like I was hoping to consult and then come back when they uh, received funding, but they, they never did receive funding. And I've now been a, a full-time consultant for about six years, which has been a lot of fun. So let's let's take a pause because I've got a lot of follow-up questions uh, with respect to your kind of journey. You obviously moved to the U.S. twenty years ago or so. Was was the plan always to move to the U.S. coming from someone that's just made the exact opposite move? Obviously, um, what was you know? It's it's obviously interesting living in in Canada, but that seems to be 
the goal for a lot of young people is to go live and work in, in the States. Was that something that was always part of kind of Kev's master plan? It was a bit of the master plan. I think um, at the time, they called it the John Cretchen brain drain. Um, a lot of the, the high-tech uh, people moved to the United States, and I, I was a part of that. And what we saw is, you know, could have been very happy in Alberta. There's a lot of high technology there and oil and gas, but I really wanted to, to move to do something a little bit different. And the thought was the United States had those opportunities. Um, this was back in 20, 2001. So I know Canada has done a lot since 2001 to, to bring a lot more innovation into the country, but that was the original thought. And um, haven't looked back. I've been in Boston now for 18 years, and I, I call it home. And uh, that's who you are, you and I. Obviously, uh, cross paths yep. when, when I lived there, and we lived very close to each other. And your eight years at Vertex, it's funny because that was something I didn't know about you. I know you, I think because I've always met you as consultants, Kev, right? I, mean, I, I, could, I kind of almost forgot you had a like before that, but that must have been that must have been quite an experience, you know, eight years during a time where from memory Vertex really grew in, at that period. Uh, they, you know, they really became a name in the second, particularly in Boston, as Boston became, and Cambridge became a big powerhouse globally. So what was, what was that like? And how did you summarize that experience? And I suppose, why did you leave? And, you know, it's often when you work for a business like that, it tends to be that kind of lifetime, I think, where you'll stay there for years and years. So curious to understand kind of what was it that you wanted, made you want to look elsewhere and, and do something else? Yeah. The um, Vertex experience that is probably one of the best uh, experiences I've had in my career from a learning perspective. It was, I call it the equivalent of my second PhD, except everyone was working on the same project. And for us, it was uh, Tilapavir, the hepatitis C project. So everyone was working a lot of long hours for the success of this, but everyone got along. We had fun together as well. And that's where I met a lot of my Boston friends and I'm still in, in contact with them. So from a pure innovation side, we brought in a quality by design program outside the FDA pilot program at the time. The, um, they were doing the pilot program. You were invited to do it. We just did it as quality by design. And as I'd like to call it, quality by design is a term for pharma. It's called good engineering in the oil industry. Uh, so, and, and statistical design. So, we, we brought that in and that was a lot of fun, the opportunity to do that. I got the opportunity to do computer modeling on spray dryers and bring in continuous manufacturing. Um, the reason why I left, it's always a good one. It's I wanted to go back to a smaller company and make a bigger difference. Um, I think I left eight years afterwards. Vertex was well over a thousand people and I wanted to go back and make a bigger difference with a smaller company. Um, and that's why I did that. And that's why I came to Boston Cambridge was actually for the smaller startup feel um, and the uh, entrepreneurship. And Vertex was becoming that big pharma company that they are today. Yeah, I mean, you you arrived at Boston. You well, obviously you were living in Boston, but you your decision to obviously go to a smaller organization was could not be in time better in terms of pretty much ten years ago now and the growth that that region. And you know, spoiler alert: we have you know the, the current head of Mass Bio coming on the podcast soon, and so I caught up. With, Kendall yesterday and we, we chatted around how Boston has become, you know, very much the epicenter of, of drug development globally. And and yes, there are lots of clusters particularly around the US now. It really is the place to be. And and I think when your your time at Trek from memory is probably when you and I 
first CPHI, but maybe I was, I'm getting that wrong, but you're, you're right there. It was my time at ending time at Trek as I was uh, part-time consulting and, uh, still hoping we'd get funding. Yeah. And, and you're, and so obviously you're working on the kind of hep C project, which is, you know, very noteworthy in terms of, uh, you know, bringing that to emerging When, so how do you summarize that experience in terms of that shift from going from a big organization into a slightly more consult? Did it kind of come naturally? And the reason I'm asking that question is there are a lot, there are a lot of people in this space that, you know, I mean, you get, have, they have a couple of beers or whatever. They always talk about, well, you know, one day I might become a consultant and do something different and set out on. And so how was that journey for you to kind of go from that come being part of a bit extra than you know, doing your own thing, so to speak? Yeah, it is a bit of a leap of faith going to it. And it's a leap of faith in believing in yourself the people around you that will help you out with that as well. And I listened to one of your other podcasts and I forgot who the speaker was. He said, as a scientist, you're always selling. You're selling your solutions. You're selling the next project. You're selling to the the scientific committee. So I always tell people, and I talk to a few people that are considering going to consultant is do what you're passionate about. And if you're passionate about it, you'll naturally sell it by it in and itself. So doing that is solving problems is what I love to do. And, you know, I'm an expert in a few different scientific fields and that's, that's where my passion is. So I tell people, if you're an expert in something and you're passionate about it, that will sell itself. Now there's a lot of things you need to look on the back half, the nuances, the, the billing, what to charge, all of that, that, that comes as a little bit of a learning process, but people want to work with people that are excited to, to solve problems. And that's, that's what I've found in this industry so far. And whether you're at a large company or whether you're an individual consultant, if you, you, you're curious, you keep on asking questions, pushing the status quo, you're going to be successful at anything. Love that. I've uh, jotted that down. Whilst you're talking, people want to work with people that want to solve. That's a very true statement in the, in the space that, that we were. So, so let's pick up the story. So obviously you had four years of Trek and then since then, obviously, that's five-year period. So am I correct in thinking the majority of the work that you've done has been supporting uh, smaller emerging biopharma companies, you know, almost acting as their head of CMC, um, and at the same time supporting service providers in the way that they are appro- approaching the biotech market? If you can kind of add some color to that and or tell me that's completely incorrect. <laughs> that would that would be great and I suppose that that takes us nicely on to talking about CMC and yep. I know it's a bit you know that is what you're passionate about and I remember you telling me you know, CMC can really sink a project if you get it completely from <laughs> and so um, yeah just understanding how the last five years look and and the types of projects that you're typically involved with yeah I agree with you I, I did say CMC can sink a project um, I always joke it CMC is kind of like the referee if you deliver all your materials on time or early and have the right tablet size and five years shelf life and everything else no one's going to know who you are you're like the referee um, as soon as you start delivering stuff late like any soccer game or football game you'll start you know noticing that person like the referee messing up a call so I agree with that entirely but uh Back to the, the the question was, what kind of companies do I work with? And you've got it right. I, I work with a lot of small, medium biotech companies. I work with uh, some nonprofit companies as well. Um, 
looking at trying to make a, a difference in, in different areas. And I work with um, CDMOs. So with the nonprofit companies I, I work with, it's usually for orphan diseases or, or needed diseases um, with that. And they, they want to bring that forward to make a difference in other parts of the world and in the United States as well. Right now, I'm working with a company called NP2, and they're looking at bringing oncology injectables um, to the market in a, a speedier way and more cost-effective way. And that's been a, a fun project to, to work with. Um, from uh, a cu- our customer base um, at SCX CMC, it's a lot of small, medium biotech companies. We're looking at companies that are pre, pre-phase one. And I talked to a lot of these companies earlier on and probably earlier than they think they need CMC just to get them a, a pathway and a, and a timeline uh, for, what, for what to expect from a, a CMC timeline. And they always think it's a little early and a little expensive at the start, depending what you want to do, given it a small company. But I try to remind my CEOs or the boards I, I, I present to is CMC is an investment into getting things done on time. You know, you can always push out that, you can always push out the cost here or there. And what I try to do is like, if you invest now here at po- time point A, you'll have your, what you need by you're ready for your phase one clinical trials, or if you want to accelerate for your phase two clinical trials. So look at it as an investment um, and not just a, uh, a cost. And I've gotten a lot of reception as CMC is an investment, but we like to work with small companies. We do a mix of different disease modalities, women's health, oncology, inflammatory diseases, neurological diseases um, as well, and a, a few other rare diseases. So it's been a good view of the span of what can be done in Boston and actually in the United States as well. I'd love to zoom in on that, that piece <laughs> in particular in terms of your interaction with small and medium, you know, medium-sized biotech company specifically in, in the Massachusetts area and and as we're, we're recording this at the back end of 2023 being a difficult year for these types of business so so how would you summarize you know if you had to take a temperature check of these CEOs in terms of you know, summarizing how they have been feeling and what their challenges have been now I appreciate different therapeutic areas different modalities but are you seeing any commonality in terms of how these customer types and or you know, emerging biotechs in particular are feeling because I suspect it's been a tricky a tricky 12 months. It, it has been a tricky 12 months and what I've been emphasizing to them it's 12 months we can plan now like if you can start planning everything right now spend the time planning for when you have your funding or when you get that clinical readout you'll be in a much better position than just not investing at all into CMC. Just what small investments can we make into getting our methods to a certain point or getting manufacturing to a certain point. So when you get that inflection, you're ready to go versus needing a a six-month startup time. So I've been emphasizing success and working with CEOs that truly believe in their product. It's just the time for funding these days, as everyone's noticed, has been a little bit longer um, with that. So from that aspect, it's been a lot of planning and strategic planning as well. So versus when I was at 
other companies. Um, it's like we got the results and then sprint to the next stage and then you sprint to the next stage. Um, always in, in uh, your firefighting mode. Now this, we have the opportunity to plan ahead and plan ahead significantly all the way through to commercialization. And that's what I tell a lot of small companies is put a plan, a CMC plan in for commercialization. It's you're looking in the future. It gives you an idea of certain experiments or certain contracts you might want to sign a little bit sooner than later. Uh, even though I know a lot of these companies want to be bought out, but having that plan and like I said, CMC can help fail a company. It can also help uh, reduce your price when you're getting bought out as well, if you don't have a good CMC plan. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. That's helpful in terms of, um, you know, it kind of reaffirms a lot of the sentiment that we've had from the CEO biotech types that we've had on the podcast. And it's interesting what you said before about the CMC investment piece in terms of getting things done. Previous podcast guest that we we had on, Sean, talked exactly the same. He said, you know, it's all about getting things done on time and getting your data readouts possible and that reaching those milestones ultimately, you know, lead to more funding in the business and make life easier and take the stress off that kind of next phase. So it's interesting to hear that. And before you talk about, you know, the rest of the work that are involved in, I just wanted to rewind back on the work that you do um, for M2, I believe it is, in terms of the nonprofits. I'm coming fresh off being involved in a Z panel at CPHI with some amazing people. I was fortunate enough to facilitate that panel in Barcelona uh, last week. And I think what was, was fascinating was just what an explosion of interest is in this area. So... I suppose my question is, in the, in the last five to 10 years or so, Kevin, have you seen increased interest in orphan disease, in rare disease, as, as obviously we've had this explosion in modalities and drug types and pla- different flat platforms? Are you seeing that more and more in the nature of the work that you're doing as well? Yeah, no, I, I am seeing a lot of people looking at rare diseases, also rare oncology as well. And there's a lot more, you know, funding out there for it. These nonprofit groups are pushing hard for funding. They're developing it, uh, developing the funding and partner. Um, ALS, um, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, they've both been great with that and, and giving funding as well. So, and there's different types of nonprofit as well. You have the bulk nonprofit, you have Mark Cuban who uh, is putting his nonprofit uh, pharmacy together. NP2 is looking at hard to manufacture injectable formula oncology formulations is what they're looking for. I worked for another cystic fibrosis non-profit pharma company looking to help reduce the price of uh, cystic fibrosis drugs. So everyone's mind is in the right place. And even when you go to big pharma, they're they're there to cure diseases and everyone's excited to cure diseases. So I don't want to put anything bad on the big pharma because I work a lot with them. I work with a lot of biotechs as you're there passionate about curing diseases. But I think there's a lot of companies that can all work well together in, in different areas, which makes sense. I agree. And, and it's, it's a it's a great point because I think certainly the the key sentiment of talk that I was involved with was around collaboration and community and, you know, between different parties in the rare disease. And that's how we're going to help solve some of those issues. So obviously cut you off before in terms of you were talking about 
the nature of the work that you do. And you also mentioned, um, actually, before we go on to CDMOs, is there anything else you wanted to talk around you know, with respect to how you support uh, biotech companies and how you support nonprofits? And we're going to come on to your event, but is there anything else that you do in, in that particular? Or we, can, or we can obviously flip to the CDMO side. Yeah, no, what we do, we support is we look at, there's six of our consultants all together. We look at bringing a full CMC team together from quality, analytical, drug substance, drug products, strategy, and looking at it from a, purely from a phase one through to commercialization side. So, and we also have supply and we have supply chain from a commercialization side as well. But a primary customer is helping them take that pre-IND molecule through to phase two and solving all the problems with that, placing it at different CDMOs. Um, we have a definite CDMO strategy. Um, and we do know a lot of the CDMOs and we have the opportunity to, with all the clients we have, to talk to over 50 CDMOs a year, if not more. Um, so it's been a why eyes industry, op- my eyes opening to the full CDMO industry and learning more <laughs> and more CDMOs in Egypt, in other parts of the world that I didn't think um, exist. Yeah, it is. it's an interesting one. I was at the Yale Roth's PBOA conference recently and they were talking about, you know, at present there was 400 plus CDMOs uh, and I think that was focused exactly on North America and Europe. So the explosion and fragmentation of CDM seems to continue and there's consolidation as well in terms of m and but actually there still seems to be a lot of them. And so if I'm working for a CDMO, uh, you and your gang of consultants rock up representing a biopharma it's an emerging biotech company are they oh sorry am, am I thinking oh god these guys nightmare because they really know what they're doing or are they is it is it is it deemed a positive thing from the CDMO's perspective that actually there's a bunch of guys here that know what they're doing and uh, you know doing things the right way, you know, on behalf of said biotech. Well, I like to think it's a positive thing for the most part, um, but it's uh, <laughs> exactly. But there's uh, negatives knowing the ins and outs of CDMOs and having briefly worked for one as well as a consultant. It's a lot of these small companies don't know anything about CMC or negotiating with this with the CDMO, so we're able to help the CDMO communicate to the the ultimate decision maker, which generally is the CEO or the CF. So getting them the information they need. So we're kind of an intermediary helping the CDMOs communicate to the upper management we're working with. Um, from our aspect is knowing the ins and outs of a, a CDMO does help our customers' expectations of that CDMO. So we're able to give them the pros and cons of every CDMO from a, a full service CDMO like your Patheon Thermo Fisher, your Catalyst to a smaller CDMO and what the benefits are of each one of them um, and what they can do. So from that aspect, it really does help our, our customers. And we're, as I tell everyone going into it as a consultant, you want to be an advocate for your customer, but also know well what the other side can do and um, ask the questions why. As I go to a lot of CDMOs, it's like, why can't we do X, Y, and Z? And they go, well, it's, I'm not sure. It's just what we've done. I've heard that before. It's like, it's part of our SOP. Um, this is the way the last bunch of customers have done it. So 
or versus you ask them, what are the regulations driving these decisions? And that's a key question to ask a lot of CDMOs is there might be a country specific regulation you don't know about. There might've been a change in one of the regulations you missed um, after placing many drug products over the years. There's things that evolve over time and you can learn a lot from your CDMOs. And the other question I like to ask them is, what are your other customers doing with respect to this? So I've had uh, clients asking for some studies um, and I go, and I went to them and it's like, what are your, what are your other clients doing with respect to this type of study? And they go, and they, I got responses. None of them are doing it. Then I have to go to my client. Is there a scientific reason why we're doing this now? And you can learn a lot from the CDMOs on that side. It's really interesting. And from my perspective, one of the, the all reasons, Kevin, I wanted to bring you on the podcast, you, you are playing this interface between the part of the market that every CDMO and every CRO and every vendor on the earth tries to target, which is these uh, you know, well-funded biotechs that are outsourcing everything. But you also, on the CDMO side, get a, a real cross-section of how they, how they behave, how they uh, deliver customer experience. And I know it's a subject you and I have talked about. And so and we're going to go on, you know, I'll go on to customer experience and pricing in a moment, but one guest that I had on probably as the name escapes me and they talked about, it might have been Roger Elias and he talked about, I asked a question about, you know, if, if you could make a change in the sector and I'm pretty sure he responded saying, you know, harmonization would make things a lot easier that all CDMOs did things a similar way and, you know, vice versa, that actually all biotechs and big pharma companies actually conducted vendor searches and you know, assessments in a similar way as well. Do you, so I suppose my, my question for you relating to that is, do you, you, do you see just different approaches constantly from different CDMO or are you seeing any sense of harmonization, which in theory would make the buyer's life a lot easier if they're... Yeah, I still see a lot of variety in CDMOs and I actually honestly think it's a good thing as well. Um, you know, you, you get harmonization within different sets of CDMOs. So your, your very large CDMOs are, I'd say very close to harmonized, um, very similar. Your small CDMOs that are six months into it, they're going to give you an entirely different experience. Um, and then you have your, your mid range CDMOs, 60 people, 50 people, they deliver a good product. They know there's certain innovation there, but you're going there for a specific reason. So I like the fact of that there's a variety of approaches to doing it. And you can learn from each one of the approaches during the bidding process. So when we go for a bid, depending where we're at, we'll call an early phase bid, a phase one, phase two bid. We like to look at smaller, medium, and large CMOs just to look at their approach of this molecule, what their thoughts are originally. And you know that way you can get a good price comparison between them all. And a good timeline comparison as well. A lot of early phase companies, it's cost that doesn't matter as much. It's the timing to delivery that matters the most. And working with each one of the CDMOs, you have an idea of what their timing and current capacity is. Because it changes from quarter to quarter and year to year. Just because one CDMO turned you down or was a 15-week lead time for one thing, 
one year doesn't mean they can't go down to eight weeks the following year. It's just where they are at their capacity. So I do like the variety that goes in to each different CDMO um, from that aspect. I think if you actually made everyone do it the same, I think it might increase the overall pricing just because they're going to be looking at compliance. That's a really good point, actually. And I think uh, I think your perspective on that is unique and different. So I think it's really useful to get that. And I'm sure our audience is certainly benefiting from that as well. You touch on pricing there. I it, Pricing and time, how much does it vary? So let's say, let's do a hypothetical scenario like you mentioned there. So phase two, or you know, let's say you've got a, a biotech scaling up from phase one to phase two, and you know they're out in the market looking for, you know, presumably they might be in the existing CDMO, but they might not be able to scale up from a size or scale capacity perspective production perspective so there might be a bit of tech transfer involved as well what like how does it vary right if you take like five quotes like how like how different are they from a pricing perspective what's included and how quickly they can get done the biggest variety i see is in timing it, it depends on it depends on the cdmo are are they timing it to do a lot of stuff in parallel are they doing it sequentially? Um, what have they done in the past? So that's the biggest area I see variety. I'll see plus or minus 30% on timing, depending on, you know, I've seen one company say we can do it in 24 weeks and other companies saying I need 36 or 38 weeks. Um, and someone saying oh, 20 for this. Uh, so you, you get that and it, that part of that is how they've done it in the past. This is what this is. A lot of most CDMOs have standard timelines for everything. So you get that. And then you get to the point where, okay, where can you, the long ones, where you, why are you so long compared to everybody else? And that's always, that's always a fun conversation to have with them. And Kevin, is that to deliver the work or is that to start? Just so I understand. Oh, to deliver the work. Yeah. So, so understood. Yeah. To start the work. That's, that's a different, we came out of COVID that that's changed a lot. Now it's a lot faster to get a project started. But that's to deliver. So when you start when you start talking to CDMOs, you go, why is this one? Why are you taking so long? And you realize they're waiting for results before they go to the next step, or they're don't not doing everything in pa- parallel, or they're used to working with different companies. That most they go most companies we work with, they need four weeks to review documents, and you can go to yourself, okay, we only need one week because we can promise on that. So it's their assumptions of the the customer they're dealing with, kind of the the workflow they're going with. Where someone on a short timeline might be, you know, parallel pathing a little bit more, taking a, a little bit more of a risk, and you have to decide yourself: is is that risk fine, or you can get them to to push it out, and you can kind of come to a basis. But like some companies just say, lab time takes three weeks to get results. Period. And you go to another company, it's like it it's two weeks. Period. So that's where you see a lot of the variety. Um, and then from a pricing perspective. Surprisingly, and I always say when you're picking a CDMO, unless it's a hundred percent price difference or fifty percent price difference, you can negotiate that price. They're all getting closer and closer together in a lot of the projects I've seen, which is impressive. And I always tell a CDMO, it's like if I give you the price reason, it's the excuse. And but uh, I usually go back to all my CDMOs and tell them the real reason I lost. And sometimes. Sometimes it's it's tough. You're dealing five bids. They're all very close. You, you have to pick one and there just could be some intangibles. This one just happens to be closer. Um, you know, I, I had 
I've previously used them in the past. They did a good job, even though this one looks like they could do a good job. You get to some of those small things if you, you're getting down to the end sometimes, and it's tough. And that's exactly the thread I was going, actually, which is what is, you know, I appreciate every bit's different, but what is the, is that one factor that tends to determine the outcome of the decision? My guess it would be, so my guess would be the quicker, let, let's assume capabilities and quality and ability to deliver or more or less the same, right? Which I, I suspect they are because you have to pre-qualify all that. So beyond timing then, is there anything else which is, comes anywhere? Okay, Let's say you've got it down to three bids, they can all deliver in 20 weeks. Do, do, is that when the intangibles become a lot more important? You know, the kind of chemistry fit, you know, the references, the trust factor, the previous experience, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, and that's where that comes into, the, the trust factor. But there's also other intangibles. What else can this company do? Uh, so you're in phase two. It's like, is this a commercial company? Um, yes, that's a commercial company. Okay, I might consider that one over that one because the other one says they can only do up to phase two. And that's a very good business in itself. The other is, do they have upstream or downstream processes you might want later? Are they Can they do packaging there? Um, can they do API? Do they have a good f- physical characterization um, in itself? The other could be, do they have backup facilities? Um, you never know what happens with weather, sociopolitical, sociopolitical yep. stoppages. Yep. Do they have backup facilities? So then you start looking at a broader thing as well with that. And yep. then are they financially stable? And obviously quality, you can't, and they have to be have the quality associated with it. The other things is MSAs. <laughs> are they going to be difficult with an MSA? Are they a very litigious company as well? So you get some of those factors is I just want to get a deal done. And you you mentioned proximity and locality of the facility before in passing. And one thing that came up last week, conference at CPHI was uh, a lady from Roche. She was on one of the panels with me. She talked about the increasing importance of sustainability. Right. They are looking at local supply where possible for all of their contract manufacturing needs. A, because this is sustainability piece. Uh, B, because obviously it's just closer. You've got less risk in terms of delivery. But the other thing that she said, which was really interesting, was that they were seeing cost advantages of getting things. Now, it obviously depends where you are. You know, if you're in the middle of Switzerland, it's probably going to be more expensive than China. But all in all, the package, you know, the differential was was closer. So, so my question for you was: Are you seeing a greater shift towards having suppliers and partners that are located closer than maybe five or ten years ago? I'm definitely starting to see that now. Is when you're picking suppliers, it's communication, it's problem solving as well, uh, flying team members out uh, from that aspect. But at the end of the day, you're still going to look for the supplier that has the technical capabilities. And if there's no local people with that technical capability, you're willing to to travel for it. Um, and then the timing as well. But, you know, I've seen more of a push to go to North America, Europe, um, for at least the, the drug product uh, supply. Um, China is more of a backup or primary, depending where your molecule is at. 
So I've, I've seen a, a bit of a migration, at least with the smaller companies. And you look at small companies, this is, they only have one molecule. So they'll pay a little bit more or go to somewhere a little bit smaller, not as well known just to get the delivery as well. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's useful to know. We are very much running short on time. And the final thing I had on my list, uh, honestly, Kev, we, we could probably chat all day and I'm, I'm hoping our listener is getting, you guys are getting great insight from this because I think it's, uh, it's great to have your experience. So I encourage anyone to phone and have a conversation with you afterwards as well. But I wanted to finish on your conference and event that you've been involved with several years now advancing drug development conference that happens in Boston every December and uh, finally I'm going to get to come <laughs> to one you and I have been talking about so I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to being part of one of your panels at the conference so give our listener a bit of a flavor for your conference how it came about what the focus area is yeah the um it came about I was used to working for bigger pharma companies, um, Vertex and other ones as well. And they always had the money to do innovations. Now that's the a disadvantage uh, working for uh, smaller companies. They don't do CMC innovations. You go to contract manufacturers for those. But the true people that put in innovations are the generally the larger pharma companies with the, the, bigger, the, the bigger funds for it. So I wanted to know what people were doing for innovation. So we started this advancing drug development looking at how do you take an innovation from inception and take it on that all that on that journey from inception all the way through regulatory approval? And it's not just from a CMC side. There's a lot that goes into this. Um, there's the HR component that goes into it. And I believe that's the panel you're going to be speaking on, uh, the human fear factor. Um, and getting the right people in the company, you know, putting them in the right positions. Obviously, you need supply chain. You need we have a regulatory session on regulatory 2.0, how to get this through the regulatory agencies as well. Our, our keynote, we like to have an exciting keynote every year. This year, it's Frank Lee. He's the uh, former CEO from For Forma Therapeutics, which just got purchased by Novo Nordisk. So he's going to take us through that journey, um, of how he did that. And he's the chairman of the board of a few other companies. So he's going to give some insights on how he brings innovation through uh, with these small companies. So, and we always have a good academic keynote. This year, it's Mark Namchuk uh, from Harvard University uh, looking at uh, how to improve the experience from bringing an innovation from Harvard through, through to a, a small company, a small startup, looking at translational medicine. So we've got a good group. You generally learn a lot of innovation. You meet a lot of people that are in the innovative space and looking, looking to make a difference um, from that. So... I'm looking forward to it. It's on December 14th. Um, the uh, web address is www.advsandvictordrug.org is the uh, the conference, and it's in the Seaport area in Boston. Which is a very cool area, one of my favorite of oh, Boston. So uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for sharing the information. Sounds, I love the kind of the way that you kind of you bring the kind of academic and industry together, focus on innovation, obviously specifically on drug development. It's super exciting and I'm uh, very honored to be part of the conference this year and I certainly encourage our listeners to look it up and uh, you know come and come and join join us at the conference or 
and indeed you can have a podcast. Kevin, what a, what a pleasure to have you on Molecule to Market. I know we've been talking about the last few years, but it's great to get you on. I think, you know, if any of our listeners are like me and are spelling them out, where we're making lots of notes and some of your insights and learnings from a biopharma kind of biotech perspective, but CDMO as well. So thank you for making the time to be a guest. No, thank you very much. And if anyone has any questions, feel free to find me on LinkedIn. It's a relatively unique last name. <laughs> Cheers, Kev. Cheers. Thank you. And that was Kevin Bitoff, who is founder and principal consultant at SCXCMC. What a great episode and what a great guest Kevin was. I'm so glad we were able to get him on the podcast and bring his story to your ears. Um, just reflecting back on some of the conversation today, um, there was some really interesting insights in terms of, I suppose you've taken chances in your career, you know, moving to the US in Kevin's take and joining Vertex and deciding to go away from the oil industry in Alberta, where he was from originally. And then, you know, in addition to that time at Vertex, I think there was some great insight in terms of taking that leap of faith uh, to become a consultant and doing your own thing, I'm sure. Many of you have thought about that at some point in your life or maybe it's an aspiration in the future. And I really like what he said about, you know, helping, why helping small businesses helps make a bigger difference. I thought that really certainly resonated with me and also just the conversation around the passion for problem solving. It's clearly part of his makeup and DNA um, and something that I'm sure many of you resonate with. Uh, the second half of the conversation, I really enjoyed. You could probably hear my own curiosity uh, coming to life as, because, you know, it just plays such an interesting role between biotechs and service providers, particularly CDMOs. And so I think it was useful to get his insight into some of the sentiment in the market uh, from a, a biotech perspective in what's been a, t- a tough time over the last year or two. Um, but also that conversation around CDMO selection and some of the key components, particularly obviously timing, but interesting conversation about uh, proximity as well. And and CMC obviously comes up now and again on the podcast, but he was someone that lives and breathes CMC. So it was good to hear the value in, in, in investment for doing that as well and why that is a useful thing for, for companies in the space. And uh, yeah, and, and obviously at the end there, Kevin talks about the event that the guys are hosting, um, the drug development event in Boston in the middle of December. So if you can make it, then please uh, you know, get in touch uh, with Kevin or on the website and, and join us there. So thanks as always to my team for pulling uh, the podcast together today. And uh, yeah, and for you for listening to today's episode, if you like it, give us a like and share it with a colleague. Thanks and see you soon. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website, at Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecules Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. 
listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.